Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Brandon and Evan show one more time. Yeah. For 20 something, 28? 28. 28. Uh, I'm going to pass it off to Brandon to introduce our guest today. Okay, so our guest today is Gabriel Mapora. He's a mentor of mine. He's a multi million dollar film producer. You've done a whole bunch of films that for millions of dollars. Um, you are very successful at raising money for movies. Uh, also, you've actually been financing um, proofs of concept of students who have been coming through my course up to, 50, right. up to 50 grand. And um, what else? Uh, you're a writer. You wrote your feature. <laughs> That's over- overly kind, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I liked it. And um, also uh, is actually... Um, been helping us as a producer on Evan's film on the highway, which is a Canadian feature, but a couple of guys who have a crazy bond traveling across <laughs> British Columbia, Canada. Um, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> anyway, so a man doing it. Yeah. yeah. A man doing it. And I think what we'll talk about today is, uh, Evan and I discuss often on this a lot about how art and business, uh, connect mm-hmm. and how, you know, you need to, as an artist, you need to have a sense of the business side of it and the marketing and the branding and whatnot. And that that's, um, you know, as important. And, uh, especially today when it's kind of a more do it yourself world and not so much golden Hollywood, right. You know, where you get kind of picked now it's kind of like you need to make it yourself. Right. So, um, yeah. So how did you get started as a producer? Why don't we start there? Well, what happened with me is I, um, I was 18 years old and I, well, 18 to 20, somewhere in that zone. And I took some business management courses at a college in Edmonton and I always knew I was going to own my own business. But, but what had happened is I decided to get into sales and I started selling like home security alarms, very expensive ones as a kid. So each alarm was like $5,000 each. And, uh, I spent the summer doing that and I didn't make any sales. So I didn't, I didn't really like that because <laughs> I didn't get paid anything for a whole summer and probably did like a hundred appointments. Uh, I was literally that bad. So <laughs> after that, what, what ended up happening is the school, the college I had gone to put out like an open call from their television program for like actors. And I thought, well, you know, I didn't make any money at this. What do I have to lose? So I, I went and I auditioned and I got the role and I hated the acting. I didn't hate the acting, but it just wasn't my thing. But the behind the scenes appealed to me. So I decided to go back to school for two years. I did um, television production. And at the end of the course, you had to do like a four month unpaid practicum. So you had to go into a real business and you had to like work for the business. And I went into a commercial production company and started working for them. And at the end of four months, like I I busted my butt on it. At the end of four months, they made me a producer. So I was producing commercials since I was like 23 years old. After a while of doing it for that company, I decided to start my own company. And, you know, here I am. Awesome. That's awesome. That's great. And now you're on to, and, and, and now you have a public company. Can we talk about that? The- yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, when, I, when I left the commercial company, I started a private company called Triton Films. And uh, the private company, you know, it's basically owned entirely by me. 
we got into music videos and commercials and all that stuff. And just recently, like over the last year, uh, I was brought in to the board of directors of a public company called Geonovis Media, uh, soon to experience a name change and a rebranding. And uh, the difference between private and public is private, you can only like raise money a certain way. Like you can't solicit everyone in theory without a big offering memorandum and a bunch of stuff. Public is like a, a publicly traded stock. So you can invest in the stock of the company and um, your money is in theory, depending on how the investment comes in liquid. You can take it, you know, sell it, buy low, sell high, buy high, sell low, hopefully not. But, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few different possibilities there. So what's the benefit of, uh, you seem to like the public uh, company more than private, or it's at least it's been pretty interesting for you. Well, I, I love them both. I mean, they're both, you know, in a certain sense, my children. But the thing about the advantage of a public company is you can go to certain like corporate financiers a lot easier than you can with a private company that just like the liquidity of the stock and the idea that, you know, you can invest in a company at its growth stage and experience uh, a giant upside with that liquidity. So you buy in at like 10 cents, the stock goes up to a dollar, you get 10 times the return. Whereas you invest in a private company, you don't really necessarily issue shares, although you could. And experiencing the upside of what that company's valuation is is very different than a public company. I'm probably not describing that very well, but basically what a public company does is it accesses money that you probably don't have access to as a private company. Right. Yeah. Cool. That's the short version. So then as a producer, like how does this, how does uh, the private company, public <coughs> company, how does it all relate to, say, being a producer, getting your films made and getting multiple film ma- films made and also... You um, seem to have the luxury right now of working with a lot of great filmmakers. Right. Keep, uh, it's not like you're just producing films on your own. You're actually connecting with other producers and other creators. And you've kind of created a hub where a lot of people have basically, because of what you've built, have been able to create and actually create stuff that's going to be commercially successful and, and whatnot. So maybe how maybe you can talk about how all this relates uh, in, in what you're doing. Sure. Um... So in terms of like the, the, the producing within, a, I mean, producing is producing within a private or public company, like my physical producing job doesn't change, but what does change is, is the access I have to money. Cause the, the toughest thing for most filmmakers is like, where do you raise your money from for your project? Like everybody has a project. We all have like a million dollar idea or billion dollar idea, whatever yeah. it is now, <laughs> a million when I started out and a billion now. Um, and the, the, the thing about it is like the more options you have available to raise money and the more places you can go, the greater your odds are that your project is going to get made. So in my case, I mean, I can raise money privately cause I have that option. I can raise money publicly. I can go to the stock markets and I can go to the corporate financing companies and all that and try and raise money that way. And then I can also just go to like film studios, like Hollywood studios and try and get them to finance or, you know, mid-level financiers uh, who finance films. There's like lots of different options. That's how I've tried to set myself up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. I, so how would you, I, I just want to throw like a really general sort of thing at you a little two-parter here Mm -hmm. how would you describe what you do on a day-to-day basis and what would you say are some of the biggest 
myths or misconceptions about what it is that you do. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, there's the, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, I mean, it, it depends on each day. A lot of, like, if you take, like, let's say last week, last week I was doing a lot of contracts. Like right now we're optioning a lot of projects. And for people who don't know what optioning is, it's basically, you know, finding somebody else's project and doing a deal with them for some sort of financial consideration or other consideration to lock up that project for two years and allow you to shop it exclusively. And then you become attached to the project if it gets sold within those two years or licensed. Um, and last week was like all that stuff this week, you know, I'm out looking for like new filmmakers and new opportunities and trying to close like a a fairly large financing deal for another feature, which again, kind of comes back to contracts to some degree. Right. Um, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, uh, when a shoot is being set up, which we do actually have a shoot this week, it's just a small thing, though, that we're doing for ourselves. When a shoot is being set up, I hire everyone, hire the director, make sure everything's in place for the shoot, the money's there. Um, there's so many pieces to, like, producing. Like, it's not... I guess that goes to the second part of your question is, like, what... I think it was, what are the fallacies of producing? Yeah, like, what are some of the myths or, or misconceptions that people maybe they come to you with and they think that, you know, you do a certain thing that you don't do, or maybe there's parts that you, you do that people don't think that you do. Right. Well, I think a lot of people think I direct, like they have the producer and director role mixed up. Right. So the difference for people who don't know what that is, is like the director is on set, like calling the shots, you know, he'll, he'll say, I want a medium shot, a tight shot. He calls the action. He deals with the actors, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the director answers to me. And, you know, if you, if you look at how important producers are to the whole thing, like you look at the Oscars, for instance, whether you like the Oscars or not, the best picture award goes to the producer, not to the director, not to the actors, to the, to the producer, because it's the producer who's really championed that thing from beginning to final stages. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an all encompassing job that deals with everything from like development to financing to pre-production, production, post-production, and then, you know, sales and everything else that goes through it. Like at no point does your job necessarily end in the process. So people should be infinitely grateful to the producer. <laughs> well, I, that's I, how things get made. I I'd mean, like I'd like to think so, but <laughs> it doesn't always play out that way. Well, you know, it's funny because I was actually just having a meeting with uh, one of the one of the movie makers who's now producing, and he's moving on to his feature, and he was talking about how it was really interesting because um, he was saying like there's this there's still this weird idea that artists think that producers are not artists themselves. Like, right. and he, and he was like, it's funny because it's like, it's like, you know, I, I set out to create this thing to help everybody create, to do this thing. And it's way more work than, you know, it, you know, but it's the only way these things get made. And then people look at it kind of like they're the artists or they're the director or they're whatever. So they're somehow like better or something or, you know, and I think like, I think like I can understand how maybe that was seen like back in the day, like the golden age of Hollywood where produce, like you had to have a, a massive amount of money to get a film made. But now like people are making movies for like a few thousand dollars, $10,000. They're, they're, they're spending their credit card They're you know, they're breaking their bank to get a movie made. And then if you kind of look at that person as like a suit, you know, what's the difference between the person that's doing it for $10,000 and the person that's doing it for a hundred thousand or a million dollars. It's like, they're not different, you know, like, and I, and I know for you, like, you've raised money from investors, but 
that's still like taking credit credit out on your credit card. I mean, you're accountable to those people and you want to make sure there's a good movie made. You know, it's not like you're working against the artist. So do you find that still present? I mean, I've noticed that from a few producers. They've kind of said, yeah, like there's this weird, like there's us and them as opposed to like we're all kind of in this together ultimately. We just have different jobs. Well, I think it, I think it all depends because there's also like different kinds of producers uh, and not just in title, but in how producers function. There is like, I think when people aren't on the same page and going for the same goals, there can definitely be like a clash, you know, if there isn't that creative synergy that exists between everyone. But like within my area, there's, you know, what you might call creative producers. And they're the ones who just focus on making sure like the script is amazing and, and the right actors are in place and they really throw themselves at the whole project creatively. And then there's like more financial producers who, you know, care more about coming in on budget and making sure uh, the project, you know, makes money and all. And that's not to say that we don't all have like that other side to us. It's just more that some people focus more in one area. So there's like producers I work with who I think bring a creative side that exceeds mine. Mm. And then I think there's like producers who I work with as well, who maybe bring a financial side that exceeds mine. I think where I've been successful is I can kind of navigate both worlds fairly well. I can think financially and I can think creatively. And I'm very good at like discovering projects and talent that, you know, have a lot of potential on a large kind of studio level. And that's where I've sort of made, made my way in terms of like my own career with directors. Usually we don't clash too much where the clash kind of comes in that I've found myself is where we agree to a certain genre tone feel to a movie and the director either doesn't have the ability to bring that out, like I've overestimated maybe or, or brought in the wrong person for that role, or they have another agenda. For instance, I want to make a commercial movie and they want to go make an art house movie. Then then there's inherently yeah. going to be a clash. And and in the end, I mean, just so everybody knows too, if you hire the wrong director, you've already lost the war at that point. Mm-hmm. Like there's really no easy coming back from that. Chances are your movie's going to suck. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like it's because it's like there's I I find that there's all these similarities. I remember um, was it Dov Simmons who said he's like you know a director's biggest job like ninety percent of directing is casting right is what he said. But and like and from your end you're just like a huge part of what it is is is, genre is well genre but the the director yeah as well picking the right director to like and it's like this chain that like trace this total trickle down most important decision for the creative producer sounds like get the right director director get the right cast cast you know whatever and then so on down the line production manager get the right you know maybe assistant director or whatever right so everybody has someone who is kind of helping them fill in the legwork which is what bogs you down absolutely and i mean even if even if your director you know you give your director the power to hire the right actors and let's say the director chooses a bad actor at the end of the day, no matter which way it goes down, the buck stops at the producer. So it doesn't matter if the director didn't get, you know, 10 shots that are essential to the movie or that the, the tone isn't right or that the editing isn't right. It still falls on the producer at the end of the day, mm. you know, because you're responsible for the whole project. And, you know, the successful producers that I've known as well kind of take that 
take that to heart. They own their failures as much as they own their successes. So I think for those aspiring directors out there, this is really good information for them to realize. Because if you want to get hired as a director, I mean, I was hired, I remember my first job directing at 21. And I think that what's interesting about that is that it's true. Like people want you to deliver a certain thing as a director. And if you don't, it's kind of a problem. You know what I mean? But uh, I think like for directors who want to kind of get work and do that, obviously, and you can talk a bit about this, but you need to have a bit of a reel, show what you've done, maybe produce some stuff on your own, but you're putting a lot of faith in them to be able to achieve the vision. And then, you know, I found like also like one cinematographer I worked with, you know, I didn't necessarily know how it would be lit to make this happen, but I remember telling him like, this is how I want it to feel. And then he was able to achieve that. And I thought, you know, it's, and I worked with another DOP that wasn't quite, he didn't have that capacity. So it was like, really improves your game. So I think this is good, good, uh, awareness for people to understand that there's kind of someone to answer to and there's a reason for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a good producer, you know, sets up the project right as, as absolutely as best they can and then keeps it on track, you know, also as best they can. But my, my experience is like, if you hire the right people from the beginning, like you aim high, you never aim like low or medium, you go for the best of the best people. And then as you maybe can't get them, you work your way down the list. Because as you set yourself up with like people who exceed your abilities or who have like amazing taste and are great at what they do, your work elevates to that level. And that's why like the really successful guys, like, you know, obviously somebody like James Cameron has great taste and a great sense of story and everything, but it's not just James Cameron. He hires the best cinematographers, you know, he hires the best camera operators, the best actors, like everybody around him is there to, and Clint Eastwood guys, you know, the best directors in the world hire the best people to execute their visions. And regardless of the budget range you're in, you know, because you're in the micro budget range doesn't give you an excuse in my opinion to go hire like, micro budget players, you know, you still aim for the best and try then to try and sell people on your vision. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's good. That's a really great piece of advice. Um, you know, I was thinking, uh, we talked a bit about this. One of our early podcasts was about genre and, yeah. and, and how important that is. And I think maybe that's something that you could talk a little bit about, like genre, like being on genre, hitting the style, hitting the feel that's necessary for something to be commercially successful, what sells and stuff. And, and like, you know, maybe we can go through the five genres, you know, if you're doing a drama, if you're doing a comedy, if you're doing a thriller, horror or action movie, like what are the demands on you as a producer and what makes sense, you know, budget wise or going forward, making a movie and how important it is to be on genre and not like do some art house thing and go off and do something that no one really understands. Right. Well, I mean, there's a few different pieces to this, like, for myself, I focused on um, science fiction, and I wanted to become known as a, as, a, as a producer who can produce really cool, interesting science fiction at a certain price point, which I've been able to execute on. And that niche has been like really good for me. And you know, I may exit that niche at some point and do some other stuff as well, but for right now, that's, that's worked really well. So like... In science fiction, for instance, the, the, the determiners for success, it always starts with the script. If you have a bad script, you're going to have a bad movie, period. Like, there's nothing, yeah. there's nothing that's going to save you at that point, <laughs> you know? I mean, either if you're going to do a bad script, accept that the movie's going to suck. 
Yeah. You know, and, and then pray that somehow some other piece of the movie is going to make you money. But like even, even, even science fiction still has like certain rules to it that you have to abide by, even if you have a great script. If you want to increase your chances of, you know, having the film get made or selling, having name actors always helps. And figuring out like what names are selling in the marketplace by working with like a, a reputable foreign sales agent and a foreign sales agent is somebody who sells movies worldwide, uh, is a really smart piece. And the other smart piece to like sci-fi, if you want it to sell, is like a certain element of visual effects. You don't need to have like 2,000 visual effects shots like the Avengers or, or Iron Man or Star Wars or any of that stuff necessarily. But if you can focus on, let's say, you know, 10 to 50 epic shots that look amazing 10 to 50 or whatever that number is like I wouldn't even limit yourself to a number although if you try for 2000 you know and you don't have a budget for it you're going to be doing this for the next 10 years (laughs) the film's not going to get done anytime soon so I I think that's what works in terms of of science fiction in terms of like the other genres like horror is a bit of a different thing and horror tends to sell really well but there's a, a, a big glut in the market of horror and the reason is you can do like a horror film for like 50 to 100 grand that does stand a chance to make money or you can do a horror film for like 10 million or 20 million dollars. If you're going to do like micro budget horror, it starts with the script again. You don't necessarily need name actors because in some ways it doesn't hurt to have them in some cases, but sometimes name actors in horror actually take you out of the the scares. Like it almost sometimes works better not to have name actors. Because um, you but, don't know who might hit the chopping block. Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all, all sorts of reasons like that. And, and horrors, you know, it's it's definitely a sellable genre. But you have to have something that you know probably is unique, executed very very well. So you've got the right scares, um, and you know, hope it goes that way. I know a lot of friends who have made horror films that just really you know never went anywhere. And then I have a few friends who made horror films that made them you know lots and lots of money and opened crazy doors. And the difference was the execution and the uniqueness of the project. Comedy, you need something funny. It certainly helps to have, you know, great actors there who have comedic timing, a great director who can do that. The the challenge with comedy is it doesn't sell worldwide as much. So you've got like a North American market for comedy because comedy here does not necessarily translate to comedy in China or comedy in Japan or comedy in Italy. Like we all find different things funny. So you might be limiting yourself in terms of your audience for comedy, but hey, if you've got something really funny, there's still the potential to make a lot of money. Drama, I feel you need name actors. That's your way to make money in drama. You need a great story, as with everything else, a great script, but you need the name actors to really hope to make the money. Right. And action, you know, I mean, you need great action. You need great execution. It's one of those genres where there's a lot of it right now, but it seems like the audience still is kind of into it and you can kind of sometimes have like really bad action films that if they're made for a certain price point still make money worldwide with like certain let's say b and c level actors right um it's it's an interesting genre that i I mean i personally feel it's it's a little bit stale and it's time that somebody created something really new and cool from it but i mean it's a genre you still can make money and and probably has lower standards than than some of the others right now. Mm. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone at the Oscars, right, because he got nominated for the latest Rocky, and he was saying um, 
how he's not, he hasn't been normally doing like, um, these types of roles. And he just, he was like, I'm lucky to be here because, you know, those type of genres don't necessarily get so recognized in this type of event. Right. It was, it was, it was cool. You know, it was like, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's true. Like action is, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those things that works and it can sell in a way, but it's not, uh, and it has these B or C stars in it a lot of the time. Um, just because it's kind of cool and it's fun and it's exciting. Um, but yeah, like I think in two with drama, like Evan and I were having a conversation actually before he came here. If you're going to shoot your drama, I think, and Dov Simmons points this out too, but it's like, you got to shoot it for a really low budget. If you don't have names, like really low, like we're Super talking low. like 10 or $20,000 or, you know, or whatever, at least under the 300 or 250 mark, because the chances of you making any more than that back are going to be so low, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important for people to know. And also like getting names attached to a great script isn't actually as hard as it seems. I think there's a lot of times people say like, Oh, I'm a first time filmmaker. I can't do that. But the thing is, is I know you, right. And you can connect me. If I have a great script, I mean, boom, I'm just one connection away to having a name actor in my movie. So I think that people don't realize that it, you know, we're so close to having what we want. Um, and I mean, I know you've worked with a lot of filmmakers who have gotten names in their movies who were kind of relatively new to making their first feature, right? No, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to kind of approach getting a name actor. Most important, especially if you're going after somebody like a list or B plus or whatever, you know, the rating scale is there is having it all again comes down to a great script. There's a lot of actors that if you've got something like really compelling and amazing, you can find a way to get it to them. And, uh, if they love it, you know, they'll consider doing it. It certainly helps if you've got the money backing you at that point. The, the biggest challenge is there's this like firewall that exists around actors called agents and managers, which basically their job is to keep everybody out who doesn't have like a lot of money. Even with compelling right. material, it becomes like really difficult to get through that wall. So if you have a direct into actor, sometimes that helps. Or if you have money that you can prove, you can do a legitimate offer and you're serious about getting that actor and your material is really good. You know, you stand a really, really good shot at getting that actor. But, you know, there's this sort of chicken in the egg scenario that exists with most projects where, well, if I got Tom Cruise, I could get the hundred million dollars in financing, but it doesn't really work that way. Tom Cruise isn't going to want to sign on to your project unless you have that hundred million dollars already in your account, ready to go. So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but everything is possible. And I've seen it done many different ways. Well, you and I were having a conversation about this, about how, you know, there can be an initial, uh, initial amount put up for a movie right. and you get a name attached, like maybe not even the biggest name of your movie. You get that name attached with the money that you have. Then because you get that name attached or you get another name attached or a couple name attached, they're willing to put, there's more money that can come in. Then you have more money. You can kind of actually get another name and you kind of go this back and forth and you start with this kind of half a million or million dollar picture, $2 million picture, all of a sudden you're up to 5 million or 15 million because you've kind of gone tic-tac-toe to get the names involved, right? Like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways you can start. Uh, it certainly helps if you have something in your account that you can show to actors you're willing to kind of put up for their offer. Like if you've got enough money in your account to actually back an offer to an actor, you can definitely, you don't have to start 
at the top of the cast list. You don't have to start with the main actor. You can start with somebody lower who, you know, is well-respected. Oh, I got, you know, John Malkovich to play the role of Eddie, which has, you know, 10 pages or 20 pages. And then because you've got somebody who's like an amazing actor who's very respectable, you may then be able to use that as leverage to go get your second lead or first lead because now somebody has essentially an actor with great depth has vouched for your project in a sense. Right. It's good to know. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I don't know if you have any questions, feel free, Evan. I don't want to. Oh yeah. I I wanted to go back a little bit, um, before to what you were saying. So, you you know, you you said you were going through your, you're finding new projects, finding new filmmakers Mm -hmm. and this and that. So like, you know, I think you've probably commented a little bit on this already to this point, but you know, specifically, you know, when you're going out and you're, and you're trying to find this stuff, like, what is it that you're looking for? Certainly there would be a level of, of commercial viability that you're looking for within any particular person or a script or, or a filmmaker, but like, what is like, how, how do you approach that? How do you approach finding, finding like new, new talent? It's a great question. So there's, there's a bunch of different approaches that we take to finding new talent. I suppose at its heart, we're sort of, we're definitely looking for commercial projects, but we're looking for, in my mind, people with great taste. Like not everybody has great taste. You've, you've, you've all undoubtedly seen movies that have tried to be great, but are like awful. And then you've seen, you know, movies that are amazing in every which way, you know, the, the, every piece of it is great. So we're looking for like filmmakers who have that, you know, the ability to do something commercial and, and an idea that comes with that. That's, that's a great idea that we can then package all the different things that we bring to the table. Like maybe we shoot a proof of concept for something which shows studios what the film is going to look like when we get financing for it. Uh, maybe we attach some concept art. But at, at its heart, we're looking for, you know, directors, writers, who really have that, that, that great taste that extends not only with one project, but with multiple projects. And you just, from my end, you just know it when you read it, you know it when you see it. It's just that, that thing that you kind of go, wow, aesthetically, this is great. Or, wow, this is, this is written so well, it's going to translate amazingly to the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think there's elements of that that you can develop. And, I, and then I think it's just inherent in some people that they've either like developed it greater than, than some people or, you know, potentially they were born with it. But I'm not here to talk genetics yeah. or, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a kind of a sensibility that, they, that someone has about filmmaking, about yeah. putting stuff together. Yeah. It's a sensibility for sure. Well, you know, it's also like there's, there's something you're talking about, too. You, you said we were looking for stuff that's commercial. And I feel like people, like at least what I, what I hear from artists is that they don't seem to understand what commercial means when a producer actually says that, because you're not looking for, like, I think when people hear commercial, like, Oh, they just want something commercial. It's like, no, we want something that, I mean, you know, connects with an audience, you know, and an audience doesn't connect with necessarily crap. They still want a good story. They still like, like there's a, like, I think there's kind of this view that commercial is something that's like, it's all a sellout and it's all like, 
weak crap, you know, that's it's, just action and visual effects. And it's like, that's not what commercial is. Yeah. It's like this, <laughs> it's this, this word that's been, been almost vilified, you yeah. know, amongst a lot of the communities like, Oh, it's just some commercial piece of garbage. But you know, we've talked about this on the show before where it's like, you know, like, there's this beautiful thing that happens when, when like sort of art and industry find a way to come together and, and work because, you know, it can go too far in either direction. You know, you make something that is quote unquote too commercial, you know, and then you've got this thing that completely lacks any substance. It's, you know, like it's basically uh, a movie that's made out of like, you know, Twitter hashtags, you know, <laughs> and then on the other end, you got someone who has no sense of it and they make some sort of just like lagging, horrible piece of art garbage, you know, that nobody understands that no, like when, other than the filmmaker themselves. And that's when art house gets a bad and, name. And that's when, when art house gets a bad name and commercial. They get the, they're this misconceptions about what they are because a, like art house, like if you look at like, say some of the con films that like, you know, nowhere filmmaker comes out of somewhere and makes a film that doesn't necessarily hit all the commercial guidelines, but it's brilliant. That is technically art house. But like, it's like, I, I feel like the, it's like another thing. It's like where commercialism and art house, it's like they're one or the other, but it's kind of like an amalgamation, you know, like it's, it's make it commercial, but find the art in the commercialism. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one of the films I like, I've referenced many times before on this is in recent years is Whiplash, which I oh, thought it's Gabe's you know, favorite film. For oh, the last, <laughs> the last five years. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite film for the last just, five years. Yeah. Sure. Just like it's a, it was so brilliantly crafted, you know, like it didn't have like really well-known people, but like, it was just so extraordinarily, ex- it, it had like great vision. It had classic elements of storytelling to it, but it, it re it sort of twisted them in a way you didn't expect. And, and it was just a, a flawless kind of a film that was just a like brilliantly mixed that, that art and that and that commercial element of it where it's just like you can access this, but it's also telling a very unique story in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like whiplash is the perfect example of when art and commercial hit and they come together. I mean, that is because if you think about it, it's about a kid that wants to be the best drummer. I mean, that's the story, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you could, you could tell someone like, what's your premise? And you go, it's about a kid who wants to be the best drummer in the world. Yeah. And you would be like, Okay. Right. <laughs> right. But what you're talking a little bit about Gabe is like execution, taste, delivery, um, the way in which it's done. You know, they talk a lot about this at uh, AFM, you know, like uh, all these producers get together and they always say, well, you can have this idea, but it's all about execution. It's all about execution. They'll say, right. Yeah. And it's true. Right. Because you need to see like, okay, well we got this film, which is a great story, but now I got to get someone that can actually make it into like, whiplash because someone could take that story and film it like I was re-watching that movie actually because it's on Netflix and um just re-watching it breaking it down and the way that it's cut together the way that it was shot the way that they give you the feel so good it's so seamless you don't even know what's happening until almost yeah. a rewatch because it's like oh yeah that happened I didn't even I was experiencing it I didn't even realize yeah that's what they did you know there's not like a really a wasted frame a wasted scene in it like everything serves something and that's um you know we've mentioned for me what I think that sort of that you know for if you're more on on the artistic side of filming you know you really want to do that where I always try and say like look at 
making something commercial or accessible as making something really efficient. Like don't like waste in Cause sometimes that's what I find at least as a commonality. If you want to break it down where art house goes wrong is that there's so much wasted space in it. There's it's a little bit self-righteous, a little bit masturbatory kind of stuff going on. Yeah. In it. And it's just like, well, it's like that was unnecessary. That was completely unnecessary for you to do that. You know, make it, make it efficient, tell the story like as powerfully, as potently as you possibly can. And that's why I love to just reference whiplash. Cause I'm like, it's just such a potent film. Nothing is without purpose in it. Yeah. It's a great film. And I think, you know, the, the, the art house films that go too far and let's say the commercial films that go too far. I don't, I don't know that the, the issues with them isn't that one is commercial and one is art house. Yeah. There's, there's just like a, a certain fakeness about them that I, I think exists. Like either the message doesn't ring true for audiences, which again, I think starts with the script or, or, or it feels like either project was just thrown together by a person or group of people with another agenda. It feels like you're, you're being sold something that you're being sold something that doesn't actually exist. There's an ulterior motive to the piece in both ways. In the art house case, you know, maybe that, that the filmmaker is this extra deep kind of person and they're trying to sell that idea to the audience, but it's not written true. And in the commercial case, it's that, you know, somebody wants to make a ton of money. But I think if you do a great project, whether it's art house or, or, or commercial or any genre, uh, that exists as long as you have like an interesting message and it's a story that needs to be told. That's at the end of the day, what really, you know, beyond making money, which is really the key to having a lasting career. Usually, um, that's the key to doing something great yeah. and, and staying power. Hmm. It, it sounds like what you're saying is, and I, I like this because, you know, it, it's like this opposite end of the spectrum, but there's a strange commonality. Yeah. To it. And I think that you, you, bring up a really great point. And for me, it sounds like it's like a self-interest thing. Yes. You know, it's like you make something out of a complete self-interest, you know, like without the idea of like, you know, having a great idea behind that, that you, you feel really actually compelled that needs to be shared. It becomes somebody's own, just like their own little, you know, something that they just can keep in their own back pocket and be like, nobody, nobody understands me on one end of the spectrum. Yeah. And yeah. It's like ego. Like, we, and we've talked a lot about the ego, right? It's like, and that ego destroys the art because I have an agenda. I want to make money or I want to show everyone I'm deep, whichever it may be or both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then it's not about making the art. So it affects people and makes a shift in their life and, and changes how they see the world, you know? Whereas I think, um, you know, if you look at like most great art, take any media and it doesn't have to be film. It seems like when you, when you experience it, you, you there's an effect on you. Right. And it's not just about, Oh, they're so great because they knew how to paint the nose or the eyes a certain way. It's kind of like, like I remember my dad got a a, a present for his fortieth or something, but it was a picture of a native man, and it was not like a clear picture. It was kind of just colors, and for example, one of his cheeks was red, and then I think his head was kind of a green and like just different colors. But but I I, I remember him and I were looking at the picture, and he said, you know there's a lot to this picture. And I remember thinking as a kid, I'm like, yeah, there, there is. I mean, that's why you're almost so mesmerized by it. Because when you look into the eyes of the, 
of this native man who's like in this, like, it's kind of just a picture of a face, really. You look in the eyes, there's just so much going on. And like, I don't know if the artist was really like, I'm going to do a red cheek because <laughs> everyone loves red cheeks. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think that he like, or, or they actually, cause I don't know if it was male or female, but I, I, but, but I think like, you know, Mona Lisa, you name any of these great pieces, there's some kind of almost effect, you know, you take movies, whiplash, you can name others, but you're affected. You're, you're like this impact in my life. Uh, you know, I left the theater. I left this, um, place or I heard this song and it impacted me somehow. You know, that's where I think things really matter. That's what we're trying to do. No, absolutely. I mean, impacting people, I think is, is, is one of the things, you know, undeniably film can do. And to some extent, the amount of money you make is related to how much you actually impact the audience. Right. So even though like, let's say Iron Man makes more money than some art house movie, Iron Man did have an impact on the audience. That's why the audience has gone to see it. Whether that impact is, you know, it's a comic book that you were growing up with as a kid and, and you've gone to see this and now it's kind of come to life. So in a certain sense, even with those large commercial movies, they are impacting people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there's like there, there's been a lot of mixed reviews, but you know, Batman versus Superman, I haven't seen it yet, but it's, you know, it's done tremendously well at the box office, despite, you know, what people think, but it still obviously has some kind of an impact on, on the general public. Well, I, I saw the movie and, you know, I can say about that movie is that, you know, when you, it was like <clears throat> the visual effects of it, you know, say what you will about the depth of the movie and whatever, and like how many cliches and stuff. And I was thinking about it, man, I was like, man, there's a lot of cliches and things in this that are whatever. But I was like, the way they kind of, the, the grandness of the action was so impressive that it was like, in a way you're like, yeah, like if you're an action buff, this is like, this is your playground. This is like, right. And, and so you think about it, like, I think of myself more as a, you know, I like thrillers and I like dramas and, and, you know, the occasional really good comedy. So that's what I value. That's what I look for in a movie. But some people, they look for great action sequences. Mm -hmm. That's what they value the most. So if that's the kind of movie you want, this delivers on that, like, you know, 10 stars. Yeah. But does it deliver like that on the drama? Does it deliver like that on the comedy? Well, there was a few moments in the movie where I laughed out loud, but for the most part, I was like, <laughs> I was like, eh, it's, you know, it's not really like that funny. And is the drama like super deep? It's like Batman, like, you know, it's a story we've heard a thousand times. My parents got killed by a thug in the streets and I'm angry. I'm going to beat up criminals. You know, it's like, <laughs> and it's kind of like the same yeah. old thing, you know, it's not new, but um, you know what I mean? But the thing is, is that's kind of just, okay, let's just have enough story to kind of keep these really amazing action sequences like, and have them make sense to some degree. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, it's Batman versus Superman. Yeah. That's the title. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> you know, you're looking for action when you go and see that. And obviously that's, that's a value. Uh, I want to maybe take a little, uh, sidestep here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just thought of something I, w I wanted to ask you actually, or mm -hmm. just get into with you. So you've been producing for a while. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had your fair share of experiences. I'm sure we love to talk about, 
you know, people's attempts or about our attempts at doing something that don't always go well. Okay. Maybe <laughs> even a bomb right. or something that just did not work out terrifically. We'll okay. put it. I'm sure you've probably had an experience with this kind of a thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I would love to know sort of what that's been like <laughs> when something on your end, like of your role, like how do you, like, how do you deal with that? How do you recover from that? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, wh- like you've, what's your perspective on, on sort of the, the failures quote unquote. Right. There's a few, I mean, pieces to that and without getting into like funny stories, which we can get into after if you want, like on, on the general side of things, you know, I've had scenarios where I went into a film with a director who I'd worked with long-term on music videos and commercials, and we, we did a film together that my goal was, I want this to be commercial. Throw in a lot of visual effects, throw in a lot of action, you know, and, and let's make this thing look really, really big and amazing for the budget. And the director's goal was, I want to make an art house piece that has great <laughs> meaning and relevance to society. Which, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with where I was coming from. The issue is, our goals clashed, and, and we came up with a movie that is neither commercial nor art house. <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of falls into its own genre that, you know, it, it, it's just not something I'm, I'm particularly proud of. Or like, I mean, it came with a great trailer. I have a great trailer I can show people, but when when they say, where can I get the movie? I usually say, oh, you can't. It's impossible. (laughs) So uh, even though it did get pretty good distribution. So um, after that, I mean, what do you do? Like each time you do a film, there's two things. Number one, you can do a film that sucks that still makes money. Or two, you can do a film that sucks that doesn't make money or three, I guess you can do a great film that doesn't make money out of all of those. If you want a career, it's the best choice is the one that makes money. Even if the film sucks, at least you live to fight another day. So each time you make a film that sucks and doesn't make money, you have twice the hill to climb next time to go raise your money, especially if you're raising it privately. You've got to explain that the last film you did was not only bad, but it didn't make money for all these reasons and why your next film is going to be that much better. So you want to try and avoid that. Um, And then if you do the great film that doesn't make money, I mean, at least you have the great film behind you, which maybe you can use as leverage for something else. But um, Well, if it truly is a great film, I mean, you could... You can understand why maybe you could look back in hindsight and say, I can see why this didn't succeed. But you could probably show the film and be like, it's a great film, but this is where we went wrong. You know, but if right. it's a terrible film, you're not going to want to show the film. Either. No, you're not going to want to show the film at all. Like it's basically a write-off at that point. Every goal you could conceivably have, and, and it kind of goes back to again. You know, you have to choose the right director. You have to make sure your goals are congruent. And the greatest risk you're going to take on any film as a producer is a first-time director. So you're basically that person's film school at that point. And mm. sometimes it works out amazing. Like you look at certain first time directors at district nine and, and other stuff like that. I but mean, it's incredible. Really a first time director. I mean, he had done like proofs and things commercials, before. music videos. I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, like, I think also when you say first time director, there's a first time director and then a, like who's experienced. And then there's a first time director who's like 
Brandon. Right. Yeah. And brand new first time director, it's probably like a 99%, if not more, 99.9% chance it's not going to work out. But the yes. experienced director, you know, maybe, maybe it really is 99%, but it's like, you know, you're going to get that one, like who's going to do a real big, you know, something. Absolutely. And it depends on pedigree too. Like a a lot of what I focused on in my career is taking visual effects artists and turning them into directors. And where that succeeded well for me is they're all very, very good visually. Like they know how to bring visual effects to life and worlds to life. And the benefit for me has been, even if the story isn't exactly there for whatever reason, or even if the acting isn't exactly there, at least we have the visual effects component to still make it commercial. But in other cases, sort of like what you said, Brandon, there's, there's scenarios where, you know, you take somebody who doesn't come from a visual effects background or any background, they're just a writer and they've never really played in film. And you put them in a scenario where they're in the director's chair. And unless they have great taste inherently great sensibility and you surround them with like people who are infinitely better than them to cover off their deficiencies, nine times out of 10, it's going to fail and it's going to fail disastrously. And I've had scenarios like that too, where I've worked with guys who don't have a background. They were just good writers. They were very good writers and, and put them in the director's chair. And it's never, it's never worked for me. And that's not to say that you shouldn't give, you know, first time directors a chance, but the way we do it now is we test them on, you know, a few short films or a proof of concept and, and see what their sensibility is like and see if they can tell a story in a much shorter amount of time. Because if, if you can't do it in like five minutes or 10 minutes or two minutes or whatever that length is, they're not going to be able to do it in 90 minutes. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse as you increase the amount of time. Right. And that's why, you know, th- that's our system right now for testing people. Mm-hmm. I think mean, that's a good model. I mean, <clears throat> because like, as you said, like, if you, you know, if you have all these investors tied up, that's like real money that people have put in. And so if they lose that, I mean, I think you need to think about the, the, the process. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's basically why I started the movie maker school. Cause I was like, go up there, you know, put your money on the line or raise a little bit of money here and, and try it out and see what it's like. Cause then when you, you kind of have that feeling of what it's like to be accountable. Cause I think like, uh, you know, we can talk all day about writing scripts and making movies, but if you've never been there on the ground on location and, you know, an experience, like, for example, I remember one of my first films was in UBC and it was, um, we had this elevator was, it's called between floors. It was about a couple that gets caught in an elevator overnight and they basically break up and get back together with them this whole time over the course of the night. It was a really cool little script. We had a, uh, elevator lockdown and I was like I mean I was like 19 I don't know something like that and we had an elevator lockdown at UBC and they're like okay good everything the night before UBC calls me up and says wait a minute they're like oh so you're going to need a security guard the security guard is going to be $800 for the night blah 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 which was basically like double or triple my budget because I was like 19 and had like no money and I was in university <laughs> living on my own and like eating canned food. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't have $800. It's not going to happen. They're like, well, sorry, you're not going to be able to use the elevator. So I called up my friend and I said, um, we just lost the location, but everything's already set, you know, to go and whatever. We had really good actors and whatnot. So we went and... Um, <clears throat> 
we actually I was a part of a fraternity at the time. I guess still am technically Sigma Chi. Um, we and so the fraternity said, you know what, you use you can use one of the rooms in the in the house, which was the base of the laundry room. So we changed the story, caught between floors where they kind of like got caught on this double door and got locked in a laundry room. And we shot the movie and it was cool and you know whatever. But like my point is is that whether that was whatever is that to experience that and deal with that, you know, and to, and to like kind of have the wherewithal to like adapt and problem solve and do whatever you can talk all about like how they didn't do this thing in this movie, but until you've been on the ground and experienced like the problems that come up in a movie, like that was like, whatever, one of my first ones. Right. But I find in filmmaking and actually producing when it's actually being done in production is a lot of problem solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the stuff that you don't learn unless you do it. You know, you know what I love about that story is that there's a part of me that's just like, you know what? A laundry room is more original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's actually, uh, uh, it's funny. Remember we were doing the AFA films and all that stuff, right? I don't know if you remember the film that I did, which was, uh, a, a, I think it was a, no, Lost for Words was the little film that I yes. did. It's a little short. And there's a shot in it where the guy's talking to the girl. And she comes up and he thinks she's hitting on him. I don't know if you remember the scene. Yeah. And then turns out that she has a boyfriend and right. they like, take the chair. Right. It's a comedy. <laughs> but anyway, the, originally I was supposed to shoot in this cafe like down the street. And I had that all locked up. And then they were like, oh, we can't do the shoot or whatever. And I was like, well, I'm not, I wasn't really able to move the days. And uh, I was like, okay. I couldn't even shoot there at all. I had to find a new spot. So we went up to UBC and my alum there and I basically went to this cafe and I'm like, Hey, do you mind if we just shoot a little scene like outside of your cafe? They're like, yeah, sure. Do you guys want some free coffees? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you know, like, we should. And, and the thing is, is I don't know if you've ever been up to UBC, but the mountains, it's like mountains and, and coastal and whatever. And the sunset was coming down at the time oh, where she was so perfect. Nice. It looks so beautiful. It's like that perfect lighting that you like that, that directors and stuff are like, we can't shoot this scene until we get to this time <laughs> of day. And you're like, Oh my God, we're going to be inside. And we shot it at that time. Right. You know? And we got this also because it was outside. It had this really, we could use this really long lens and everything in the back could be kind of like, a little blurred out and, and her face was super sharp and it was like beautiful. And it was like, had that problem never occurred, that never would have happened. But these are the things that you deal with when you actually go into production. Like, right. You know, I know you're dealing with one film right now. You're on your, you guys are on your third, like run through of it. You're like just problem solving. Yeah. <laughs> Last night, just problem solving. How do we solve this? Right. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, a, lo a lot of producing is definitely problem solving. You want to try to get as much of that out in pre-production as you can so that when you're, your goal is when you're in production, you're just kind of sitting there waiting for something to happen that hopefully will never happen. And everybody's just asking, what does that guy do? Because yeah. you're the calm guy on set, not doing anything, right. you know, other than watching the shots and making sure everything's kind of coming together. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like being the captain of like the Titanic. You like know that icebergs are coming or they might, or they might not. And you're just like, if this happens, I'm going to be ready to deal with it. I'm going to have a plan. We're going to figure this out. Right. But most of the time they're just watching the guy just drives the ship. <laughs> <laughs> he just drives it from like there to there. And like, what's this hard work is like getting out of the dock and then landing it in the dock. Right. But it's like, no, that whole travel in between is like, 
Indoubtably, you're going to hit some icebergs. It's like, you might not hit a major one that's like a showstopper, but you're going to hit stuff. Problems are going to happen. There's going to be sometimes inner, inner set fights. I remember one time, actually, a movie I made, actually, this was one when I was 21, I was hired. I mean, this actress, and she was a diva. <laughs> and, um, or she was being a diva, I should say. And she wouldn't do this shot. And basically, the way, it was kind of an artistic picture, they, you know, whatever, but it had to, like, basically, it was film noir, right? So it had to fall from the shadow, or from the person into a shadow. And it was this really cool shot that I had kind of planned. And I'm like, and to finish it, she had to basically just kind of, she didn't really have to act. She just had to do a very technical job. She had to, like, kind of lean up on her, on her arm and then let herself fall, you know, kind of onto this pad. And she was like, we we're trying to do it, and I got the whole crew and everybody in. We're, we're downtown, like, in Hastings or whatever. And uh, we got, like, we didn't have, like, a huge budget, so we're, like, lighting it with someone's car lights, you know what I mean? <laughs> and she wouldn't do it. And I remember, and she's like, I don't want to do this and whatever. And I, and I remember being like, I don't know what to do. And I remember just standing there and I was kind of like behind the camera and I just didn't say anything for like five minutes. I just stood there and I just put my hand over my eyes and I just like kind of went like this <laughs> for five minutes and I just waited. And then she goes, and everybody just got sick of waiting, I guess. And she was like, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> so like, we waited her but out. But like these are, yeah, I waited her out. But these are like things that you never expect are going to happen on set. Like, <laughs> You're just like, it's whatever. like, all right, we're going to go, we're going to get the shot. She's going to fall. We're going to get the shot and then we're going to yeah. move on. And then yeah. she's like, yeah. you don't expect, it's like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, I didn't know I was asking you to do anything unreasonable here. <laughs> Someone came up to me actually after that and after on set and they said, you know, I never realized, they actually said to me, they said, until that day, I never realized that some things are not about the actor. They were like, they were like, I actually it shifted my entire perspective about what we do because they were like, and, and I think they realized in that moment that sometimes there's things that production need to do that isn't about your acting ability or whatever. It's just that you need to be kind of the, in a sense, and I don't mean this derogatory, but the kind of the human pylon that we need right now. Like for example, the movie problem that you're dealing with, right? Where you mm -hmm. can't get the actor back on set and whatever. Now you need a new actor. So how do you deal with that? Or do you cut it out entirely? And actually Gabe came up with this idea the other night where he's like, well, if we have a mask on this person and kind of fits with the story, whatever, you don't need to see who the person is. And so if they look the same, you're going to think it's the same person anyway. And it was like kind of a problem solving. Like, what do you do? The actor won't come back on set. You know, there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. Right. So anyway, I don't want to. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to absolutely uh, be prepared for anything. And what's going to hit you is probably something that you're not prepared for. And it's all about your, your problem solving abilities at that point. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, this is, I, I, I love this because, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, a different side of everything than, than what we normally talk about, at least in, in detail. Uh, but I just love when there's these, there's so many parallels and comparisons because we talk a lot about how, you know, how there's, a, there's so much that you can prepare for. There's all, but there's only so much that you yeah, can like prepare for. Yeah, like our last for. podcast on the road trip. Yeah. We had, we just like went crazy <laughs> on this road trip analogy, but it was like, you know, you can map everything out, you know, where you're starting from, you know, where you're ending and maybe a couple of places where you're going in between, but you know, you, you don't know that, that trip until you've actually gone through and done it until you've actually experienced it. And there's going to be things that you, you cannot 
there's, there's no way you can possibly account for every little twist and turn and deviation and this and that that's going to happen along the way. Yeah. And, and that happens in, in a creative process that happens, you know, on, on sort of like just on a basic sort of like, or also on like a scheduling or a, you know, dealing with a problematic person. It's all creative problem solving. If you're an actor, it's like, you know, you're, we talk about, you know, you're presented with, you know, you have a scene partner who does something completely unexpected that you didn't think they were going to do. Well, you can't just shut that down. Like you have to acknowledge it and you have to, and you have to adjust to that and you have to take it in and and respond. Mm. Uh, And I just love how, you know, this, these things just ring true all the way through. Yeah. Throughout, it doesn't know, matter everyone. what job you do. It doesn't I mean, matter what job you do. Even what you're talking about there, Dave is like, yeah, you can, you, you're usually not prepared and then you're creative. Like what, what I watched you do last night when you were breaking down how to solve that film was creative solution. Right. Know? And that's, and the thing is, I think that sometimes, you know, this is a conception I would love to break in the world, especially with people in the film industry is that producers are, equally, if not more sometimes creative than most of the people on set, because they're actually figuring things out in the moment on the go money's burning (laughs) as the seconds pass and you're coming up with creativity. And I think like the more you produce, I at least have experiences myself, the more movies I make, the more my creative problem solving improves. Uh, Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, you just get better at it. And you know, while each problem presents uh, a, a unique circumstance to solve, as you solve problems from the past, or as you can access problems you solve from the past, often you can take that and use that to solve whatever problem exists right now in, in whatever way. You just get really good and experienced at solving problems, you know, whenever you produce anything. Mm. That's great. Why don't you uh, introduce? Why you, yeah, why don't you introduce this uh, this beer that you have poured okay. in our glasses? Well, you know what? So Big Rock Brewery yes has uh, we we've had them on the show before a couple times yeah, but um, today was my first time picking up the beer and I was talking up the podcast and I was Ooh. telling them how you know we're we're doing the podcast and we do craft beers and whatever and they were super pumped about it and they actually gave me a, a free growler and a free fill so they gave us two beers today. Um, which was really awesome of them. And, um, yeah, so I mean, so what do we got? Great atmosphere there. Um, all right, Evan, (laughs) come on, money's burning. (laughs) Do I need to solve a problem? So are their ears. (laughs) So we got the Wayfinder Pale Ale. That's, that's what you got in your, in your half pint here. Um, in your glass. Yeah. great. Mm -hmm. Great beer. Great beer. Um, Real easy drinker. It's it's only a four point five percenter. Um, yeah, and it's it's delish. Um, the other one we got here, which I gave us kind of little taster glasses of, which we've been having a few already. It's called Midnight Raps Rhapsody, and it's a um, what do you call it? A uh, a berry porter or something? A berry porter. That's yeah. right. Yeah, five point five percent. I really like it. I, I, I kind of gave us this kind of a, a little bit smaller because I figured we'd probably focus on this other beer, which I seem to have made a good guess. <laughs> and we're doing about half that amount. It's, it's, I find it's, uh, the berry porter. I find it really good. Like, and I actually don't like for sometimes these fruitier beers, I find the fruit like is a little bit too much, but this one's actually, it's good. Like I, I find I can keep drinking it and I'm not kind of getting tired of it. Mm. Well, yeah, the, uh, the sugar or the sweetness or whatever doesn't really, 
it doesn't really linger. It doesn't no. really stay mm-hmm. and like kind of just gum up your mouth. <laughs> and you know what the thing I like about this this um, Midnight Rhapsody is is it actually tastes like a porter with just a berry finish. Like mm-hmm. it actually tastes like a porter. And sometimes these sweet beers. I mean, you and I have talked about this maybe offline, but about how sometimes the really sweet beers because they're sweet you can kind of taste the alcohol in them because the sweetness or whatever is just or if it's like or they're too sour or they're too much this one i'm actually finding is like a pretty pretty good drink it's really good yeah really excellent good. two thumbs up absolutely <laughs> from the movie producing uh yeah big rock brewery so check them out very good mm-hmm. anyhow how are we at are we uh well, no. I mean, let's let's. Do you have some more. You have some more. I have a few more uh, questions. More questions some thoughts. Yeah. Let's. Um, I was just thinking. Uh, so, I, I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of advice, or give our listeners a little bit of advice, Gabe. On, mm-hmm. you know, if someone like is making their first film, if they're um, if they've already made, say, a festival winner, and they're making their next film, um, if they're making their first short. If they're gonna make a proof of concept, why do this stuff and what to do and and how to think, you know, as you're going okay. through these processes. So I mean, each one of those sort of is a different scenario. But starting with like, let's say you want to make your first film, or let's start with first feature film. You want to make your first feature film. The first thing you want to do is you want to either you know write or find a script. Conceivably, once you've once you've done that, the next thing you want to do is. You know, hopefully it's something you really like and think it's going to bring something interesting into the world and tell a great story. But you don't want to just trust, as a new filmmaker, you don't want to just trust your own judgment. Like, that's just kind of the reality. In in a certain sense, you're going to develop taste as you go. So you're going to want to show that to foreign sales agents, maybe some friends, people who have um, more experience than you, and get their take on it. And if everybody is telling you, you know, this really sucks should maybe really strongly consider that. And if everybody (laughs) is saying this is really, really good, you know, your next level is then to move on to the financing in terms of like a a short film where there's like less money at risk. It's a good place just to experiment. You know, shorts are a great place to experiment with good or bad material to some extent. Like you don't have the amount of money on the line that you have with a feature. I would still like shop your short to friends your short script to friends and see what they say. And again, if they say it sucks, you know, maybe find another script or if you really want to do it, I mean, the, the money risk there isn't equivalent to a feature risk. And you can always like bury that in your career. Whereas a feature is like much, much more difficult to bury in terms of like proof of concepts. The reason you do a proof of concept is, is not to prove to yourself that you can do this, <laughs> but to prove to like financiers and studios, maybe actors, that the idea that you're, you're putting forth with this feature or pilot or web series or whatever it is, is like a viable thing to bring into the world and to get financed. So like having a very strong proof of, proof of concept with a script with like some, some strong concept art is the way that like at least visual genres are getting financed now. So like sci-fi for sure, horror for sure, comedy, even though it's less visual, still projects get made based on proof of concepts for comedy. So uh, like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia came from uh, um, a comedy proof of concept. Uh, One James Franco movie, The End of the World one, 
mm. came from a proof of concept uh, with Seth Rogen uh, in that movie. And so it, it makes sense to do that in terms of, was there any, any other one I missed there? Well, so <clears throat> let's say you've, um, you've gone over, you've made your first feature, maybe you made it on that like 10K, oh, festival, 20K right, right. budget or whatever. And it did well in festivals, right? Those films can often do well in festivals, but I mean, what people don't realize is a lot of festival successes don't actually make very much money. Correct. So, but that's still great because now you've got the clout as a, you know, if you were in Tribeca or you were in Cannes or, you know, something like that, you actually got some clout as a filmmaker because you've made it to a major festival, right? Um, or maybe you have it or whatever, but what do you do next? Like, what's your, your next step? Okay, I've done this. Um, what, what, what would you suggest for someone basically moving forward and like leveraging that say, uh, let's, and let's just talk about like, I mean, obviously you make a crap film, make another film that's good. Like, right. You know, but let's say someone actually has a successful film. They're accepted into one of the major six or seven festivals, Toronto, Cannes, Berlin, Sundance, Tribeca. Um, I miss, I'm probably missing a couple, there's whatever. A, there's a bunch. Yeah. You get my point, right? So yeah. they're in one of those, they, maybe they don't even win awards, but they're in a major film festival. Maybe they don't even get dis- distribution out of it for their next move as a filmmaker, what would you suggest for them? So, I mean, obviously you want to find a way for that film to make money because if that film makes money, it's infinitely easier to go out and raise money for your next film, Mm -hmm. like infinitely easier. So your films won like a festival or two festivals. Hopefully at that point in time, you have like a foreign sales agent to sell, you know, other parts of the world, your film. Uh, Conceivably, it would be, um, how would you say this? It would be sellable on some level as like people in festivals have at least liked it. Judges in festivals have liked it. So you get a foreign sales agent to sell other parts of the world domestically. Usually I do my own sales. Like it's not very hard to pick up a phone and call Lionsgate or Paramount or, you know, any of the acquisitions departments of major studios, networks, broadcasters, and, and talk to people in acquisitions there and try and get them to view and buy your film. And if you've won awards, there's a decent chance they'll at least watch it and, and take a look at it. So by no means is like festival, does festival success guarantee you distribution, guarantee you sales, guarantee you that you're going to make money. It's just like a little bit of credibility to maybe getting your foot in the door for that next level. Right. Yeah. So it seems to me, I mean, from what I understand, succeeding in the festival world is really, really good for the director. But I mean, it's, and maybe the actors, cause maybe if it's a great film, they kind of get seen. But I think like the rest of everybody else kind of labor of love for the most part or whatever, you're a part of a great, getting a great film made. But I think like <clears throat> from what I, at least from what I understand, it seems like if people want to be directors, you kind of need to go out there and you need to make something, at least a short, if not a proof. And ideally, maybe a feature you do on the low low budget, right, and get done, uh, just to show that you actually have some ability to get stuff made. I, I mean, absolutely. You're not a director until you direct, yeah. you know. So if you don't have anything under your belt that you can show that's, you know, at least decent or, or ideally very good to exceptional... You're not going to get hired. It's going to be very difficult to get money. I mean, there are, if you're a great salesman, it probably, from, from just solely a money-raising point of view, you take the ethics out of the equation, you can probably raise money regardless of the situation you're in. But 
from an ethical point of view, as soon as you accept money from any investor, certainly as a producer or even, in my opinion, as a director, whatever your position, your goal is to return that money plus some so that that investor will reinvest again and, and even more so on a larger level so that film doesn't get a bad name because film has really gotten a bad name from, you know, indie filmmakers who, who do films who don't do their research as to, you know, whether the film is sellable or, or films that never get finished or, you know, uh, just any sort of number of things. And then Hollywood films that don't make money that, you know, studios have spent $100 million on also doesn't help our collective cause in terms of raising money. So the goal, you know, first and foremost, if you want to have a career as opposed to like a one-off, you have to look at it from a scenario of how can I make money from this film, period. You know, and then everything else after that. But, you know, do start with a great script because that's going to help you. You know, I, I like that you brought that up because, I mean, I think that's the mo- one of the most important things is that this is a collective. I mean, we are all in this together. Like if someone makes a film and they basically take a bunch of investor money and they film, film never makes a penny because they didn't do the work and the research and the, they weren't mindful about it, it hurts all of us. You know, it's not about your ego and about you making your film. It's about us all being mindful to make sure that we make films that actually work or at least make their money back, you know? And so I think that, you know, before you start thinking about raising money and going like, oh, if only someone would give me money for this, consider if you were someone, would you put your own money, if you had it into this thing, you know, into someone else making it, you don't get the benefits of being the director or the writer or any of that. You just put your money in. Would you do it for this script if someone else was making it? And I think if you wouldn't, that's a really... That's like, a big problem. That's a big problem. Like, maybe like red flag, like pay attention to that because, you know, because um, I think you're feeling the effects of that. This is a collective. We're all into this to some degree. And yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I think where independent filmmakers and maybe, you know, studios also fail, but let's focus on independent filmmakers for a minute is you have this great idea and then maybe you have this great script or at least you think you have this great script, but a lot of independent filmmakers just rush to go get money to get that thing made. Like there's no actual vetting process of, is this actually a great pro- project? You know, I mean, does it look like we're going to have the, the sales from foreign sales agents to make back our money? Is it conceivable that a domestic distributor, like a studio or something like that, or, or a broadcaster network is going to want to come in and, and actually uh, buy this? And there's enough people around who have, who've done film sales that you can actually get opinions from fairly easily, especially if you have the financing to vet whether in fact this, this makes a lot of money or will, will actually make money. But you probably want to do that before the film even has the money associated with it. Cause at that point it's very difficult. The train has already, you know, left the station uh, and you're obligated at that point to deliver some sort of film. But I think, I think independent filmmakers fail at the vetting process. And I think studios where they sometimes fail too, is like they'll rush something into production regardless of budget. You know, there's been a few cases recently where $140 million project rushed into production. Great director made back 10 or 20 million. And that's about all it's going to make back. And that's like a colossal, you know, failure on so many levels. Shareholders lose value. All of us as filmmakers now are grouped into this, 
you know, into this group of, well, I heard about this movie that was $140 million that only made $20 million back. Film is inherently too risky, uh, is how investors start to look at things. And if everybody just vetted things a little bit more, I mean, not everything's going to be a hit, not everything's going to make money, but at least there's a greater chance that way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too that you talk about this because I remember um, some of our early conversations and you were telling me a lot about like how <clears throat> when you actually raise money is you actually have done your work and you break down like and do pre-sales and talk about all that about how the movie will make back the money. So it's actually a really good investment. And so like if someone was to say finance with you, it would actually be a really good investment. Whereas like if you were to invest with some someone who didn't know anything and didn't kind of do their work, it's really a terrible investment. But unfortunately, um, if someone's invested with that other person who didn't really care whether the money got back or not, now that person has that bad taste in their mouth. But I think that you're, it's, it sounds like at least to me that your success as a producer has worked because you've consider, considered always thinking about how to make sure that people get their money back and then some. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and undeniably, if I look through my career, I've definitely made some mistakes. I mean, I was one of those independent filmmakers who didn't vet certain projects as much as now, now knowing the knowledge that I have now, there's certain things I absolutely would have done differently in terms of the directors I chose, in terms of how much I would have vetted the script before it gets in place, in terms of how the equity for the project, equity being the actual cash component, would have gone into the project. Um, and, and even in terms of how you sell it to investors, like for instance, the beyond first-time directors, the next biggest risk you're going to take is doing a single film. So if I do a single film, even if I do it with the right director, even if I do it with the right actors, even if I vet it to some extent, unless I have like a lot of pre-sales or minimum guarantees associated, which is like selling the film before you even go into production, if you don't do that and you're taking a certain amount of risk with equity, you can't guarantee that that film is going to make money unless you have those sale commitments in place. So the safer bet to some extent, believe it or not, as long as you're working with like good people, good directors, is doing like a slate of films. So like three films, five films, you know, maybe the first film you do is a failure, but you've got three other tries to actually make it right or two other tries to make it right. And that's how studios succeed. Studios don't put out, you know, one film and hope that that film's a hit. They put out 10 films, two are going to be hits, three are going to break even, the other five are going to do horribly. But the two that are hits pay off the eight that weren't hits plus profit. Right. And that's why a slate is like so key, I think, in terms of like as you get bigger and as, as you start to think about this on a more macro level, it's, it's, a, it's a greater key to success and succeeding in the business. It's a vision. You know, actually, they say with goal setting, <clears throat> if you don't have a goal beyond the goal that you plan to accomplish, you'll never complete the goal you have. Mm -hmm. And that's why vision is so important because vision is, these are all my goals laid out. Once I accomplish this goal, this is the next goal that I'm going to move to. Right. Um, and I think this is interesting because we've talked a lot about where films fail is they don't ever get completed. Right. Um, and if the filmmaker doesn't see how this thing is setting up for their next goal, they could sit at that 90% or 99 point and be like, ah, oh, it's not ready. It's not ready. It's not ready. Whereas like, if you have another film to move on, you're going to be like, we need a closing date for this. We need to move on and get it done and whatever. Right. Cause like, I mean, I know like, uh, 
and you've had this experience and I've had this experience where you're hanging on to a film and it's like, we just need to get this thing done so yeah. I can move on. Cause I got other things to create yeah. in my life. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think where films usually don't get finished, at least on an indie level, isn't so much where you have an auteur director taking a lot of time. Sometimes I see that it's usually that it's misbudgeted. You go into it with all the right reasons and then it's like completely misbudgeted and then halfway through, three quarters of the way through, you realize, oh shit, we ran out of money. Yeah. You can't go back to the same investor because they're going to freak. You can't necessarily easily go get new investors because that is against the deal you made with your one investor because now you've got to break up the back end or whatever, the profit sharing. And so you're stuck in a position where you have to finish the film essentially for free and it probably should cost you like several hundred hundred thousand dollars. You have to, to give up your end. You have to give up your end or you have to find a way to raise cash that isn't like easily reimbursable cash or comes from your end, as you said, mm. uh, or you've got to put up your own money. And, and I've seen that's where usually films, at least on the indie side, don't get finished on the on the bigger side, like on the studio side. All films pretty much get finished because they get something called completion guarantees. So completion guarantee is insurance that you buy. That's very expensive insurance that they basically guarantee the film's going to get finished. So if anything happens, they run out of budget or, you know, whatever it is, completion guarantor comes in, puts the balance of the funds in and finishes the film. Now, indie filmmakers also use that, but only that starts at about the million dollar budget level or $2 million budget level below that completion guarantors won't touch your film. Okay. And I have a, I have one last question that I want to ask, um, is about budgeting and I, you've been helping Evan and I get this little Canadian feature off the ground or whatever. And, uh, I remember, and we've talked about this more than this film, but you were saying like budgeting post-production and what, like, and you were saying like, put a lot of the percentage of your budget into post and how important that is. You maybe want to talk about that because that's something I see a lot with filmmakers is that they don't have any money in post. They burned it all in production and now they're like, well, we don't have enough money to do post and that's really where completion kind of happens. Right? Yeah. I think, I think post is, you know, absolutely on, on the sci-fi level where I exist, a lot of money goes to post because you have to do visual effects. Um, in terms of the other areas, you know, it's, it's one thing if you get like a great image out of the camera and you get great performances and all that sort of stuff. But if you don't then get great audio and you don't get great color correction and you don't get like all the other pieces that, that exist in post-production, your film is going to be less than, you know, less than what it needs to be. So I think, um, you know, absolutely post is key. And I, I think it's an area where people do take it for granted and they often don't budget enough and it's good. Again, it kind of goes to when you're starting a project, like especially as a producer, you definitely want to have it budgeted outright. And I think certainly with indie filmmakers, a lot of the temptation is especially in Canada, not as much in the States, but in Canada, there's a temptation to think very small, you know, Oh, let's do this for a hundred grand. It can't fail or let's do this for 50 grand. It can't fail because it's for 50 grand. And that's a complete fallacy. You're better off doing a film for a million dollars that you spend half of that or three quarters of that getting like a major star for a few days or whatever the case is, uh, that then makes the project sellable than doing a project for 50 to a hundred grand with the idea, Oh, it can't fail. It's 50 to a hundred grand. There's so many films right now that are in the 50 to 100 grand range because you can use your iPhone to shoot a film or you can use cameras that cost like, you know, two to four grand 
anyone can go shoot a film right now. And there's a glut of these like little tiny films that are, you know, pretty awful and unwatchable um, mm-hmm. that people have raised money for, or put up their own money for, rather than, you know, going out and raising a million dollars. And the other fallacy is the idea that it's easier to raise a hundred grand than it is to raise a million dollars or $10 million. It's all the same. It's just how compelling your package is. And at the million dollar range or $10 million range, at least you're getting paid. At least you're able to pay the right actors. At least you're able to do it right. And that gives you a greater chance of the film succeeding Mm -hmm. in certain genres. Anyway, you know, if you're doing drama with no names and you just, for whatever reason, insist on doing that, don't do that for a million dollars. Right. Do that for nothing. That's great. Wow. Do you have anything left? Yeah, no, I, I think this is, this has been great. Like I, I, I'm definitely going to go back and I'm going to listen to this one. again. <laughs> yeah. Good. I gave, well, you're you're one of my mentors for a reason. I mean, you have a be. massive amount of information and you've helped me tremendously and you've helped a lot of the movie makers that I've worked with, you know, to move their careers forward. And, um, I'm just really, I'm really grateful. I, I'm sure Evan's really grateful that you've been on the show. and um, Thanks for having me. And I think that a lot of people, if, if they get the luxury of listening to this, will benefit greatly if they want to be filmmakers and, and be successful in this industry. Because I think that it's one of those things, like film school just doesn't teach you this kind of information. No, you know no, what I mean? And that's, that's the beauty. I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, is what's really great is you've introduced me personally to so many amazing people. And I think that... Uh, um, you know, I was just thinking about this and we're going to wrap up. We we usually wrap this up with a point that we all take from the, from the show. But I I was thinking about, you know, um, when I started the movie maker school, you came in about 70 or 80% through that first class that I ran. And I remember that's when you and I really connected. We actually met. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Yeah, this. in L.A. We met in L.A. Yeah, at the yeah, German I remember, yeah. Film Fund party. Yeah, yeah, my buddy's party. AFM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we went to that too the year before, I think, or maybe that to was the AFM. Year. Yeah. Did we go or to the, the German film party? I'm pretty sure we did. I I can't remember. It was a while fancy ago. Fancy one up in Malibu. It's a nice yeah. one. Yeah, it's a good party. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, but I remember you kind of seeing that and. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, and I think my, my point of raising this was that I never realized what doing that would attract, but it was amazing because it's attracted you and then it's attracted me to other people. And it's really kind of helped in many ways, launch my writing career and open up a lot of doors for me as a filmmaker. And I think that my point that I would leave people with, which is what I'm getting to is that, you know, make your film or, or set out and write your script or do the thing that's important to you because you know, you, you, you know, you don't know what that's sending out in the world. I mean, we're doing this podcast right now. We don't know who's ultimately going to hear it, but we're doing it and it might attract some really great people to mm-hmm. it and it might help some people and it might not, but whatever, we're doing something that was important to us. And I think that that's kind of what I think I would leave people with. And, you know, and then as you do it, get better at kind of understanding, like, you know, I mean, marketing this podcast, I really, at this point have very little idea, you know, maybe by the, yeah. people, like you market it so well, or maybe we market it terrible. <laughs> I don't know. But right now I still am in the learning phase, but, but what's important right now is we're doing it. Not me going, well, I'm not going to do a podcast cause I don't really know how to market it. But I think also when you start getting money, like if we were to say getting marketing dollars behind this, for example, I'd want to start really making sure that I knew this podcast would succeed if we were doing that. That's what I'm saying. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's, that's kind of what I'll leave it with. 
for me, it's uh, like, you know, taking away with a lot of what you've, you've said, it's like, you know, there's, there's almost, uh, you know, you, you've helped to demystify a lot of these things, you know, and it's just like, oh, this is not as, it's not, it's not as intimidating as, you know, I think a lot of people think that it is, you know, it's just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to meet these people. And, and to ask me like, who am I? And blah, blah, blah. And this and that. It's just like, you know, if you've got something that you, that you believe in, you know, you've done your work on, you know, you've, and, and you have something that you feel is, is truly something, well then, then go for it and, and truly, truly make it. It's, it's probably not as scary as you think it is mm-hmm. to, to move forward with it, you know? Well, and I think, yeah, the thing is, you know, you bring value to the table, right? Like Gabe wouldn't be here had you and I not started the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, it just created the opportunity. And now this happened that you were able to share that. And I think the thing is, is that as creators, as artists, we got to just, you know, I think the first step is create something, go out there and do something and don't, I think don't get overly complicated because I mean, like you're saying, like, I think there's so many excuses where people go, well, I can't do that because I'll never get the money or whatever. Make your first film. You know, if you want to be in film, just go and shoot your first short. I mean, I shot my first short for probably $7 <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Yeah. I think I bought a can of beans or something for everybody. <laughs> Jeez. And I don't even actually know if I spent, actually, you know what? I spent probably 50 bucks because we won it at the festival and that's part of the award they gave you 50 bucks, 50 back, bucks, which was kind of a joke, but and I it gave was it beans for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> beans for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, but my point is, is that, you know, had I not made that film, you know, things wouldn't have started. Right. So anyway, but, but as you, once you get going, I think what your information here that you've shared is really good for people who are kind of making things they want to make, they want to take things beyond what everybody's kind of doing. Right. But if you're not even creating, you're not even really in the game. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're not creating, you're not in the game. And I think, you know, the most important points I think in terms of, you know, where I've been and where I'm going is, you know, number one, work with people who are amazing at what they do and, and better than you and reach for the sky for the, you know, for the people that you're working with. Um, two, in terms of your own work, don't settle, do great work. You know, it's not okay to just do okay. Because mm-hmm. everybody's doing okay. If you want to actually like have something lasting, as we get more and more overpopulated on earth, <laughs> you know, stand out and do like amazing, incredible work. And three is exactly what you said. Go do something. You know, you can't sit. It's not going to come to you. Right. And I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, if you were to almost reverse the order, go do something, you know, like low budget, whatever, just grab a camera. You don't even have to spend any money. Just grab a camera, film your friends, film a scene that costs nothing. It costs nothing to write a script pretty much. Get Celtics online, right? Get a, (laughs) get a camera, get your iPhone, get whatever, you know, borrow someone's film something for free experience, filmmaking, whatever. Right. Once you're actually doing it, then let's have this conversation, which we're talking about. Cause I don't think this is for people who are on the other line who have never created anything. I mean, this is, this is above your pay level, (laughs) right? (laughs) Above your pay grade, you know what I mean? But once you've been creating for a bit and you want to actually get into the, from the amateur world into the professional world, I think what you've brought up today is really, this is what we're talking about. We're like, how do you, how do you shift from being like a film school grad or someone who wants to be, who has made a few films to being someone who's actually a professional making money and gaining a name and yes. some club for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Always appreciate it. Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> 
That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.